welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. As long-time listeners of the show will know, we've spent a lot of time looking at liberalism. Liberalism in history, liberalism as philosophy, liberalism as ideology, the various debates and contestations within liberalism. But what's the state of liberalism today? And if you look at Europe right now, it would seem like European liberalism is under attack and is fighting for its life in a way that it hasn't had to, at least in my lifetime, maybe longer. With Brexit, with the rise of the far-right parties in Italy and Hungary and other places, with a resurgent and overtly anti-liberal Russia, it, it does seem like liberalism not just as a governing philosophy, but as a constitutional order, is really being shaken to its core. So, what are we to make of this, both from a theoretical and a practical standpoint? My guest today, to help make sense of all of this, is one of the UK's leading journalists and political commentators, Ian Dunt. Ian is the editor of politics.co.uk, and he specialises in issues around immigration, civil liberties, democracy, free speech, social justice. He's a regular panellist on the news, he's on the BBC, Sky, Al Jazeera, as well as a variety of radio stations and podcasts, including his podcast, which I strongly recommend, which is called The Remaniacs. And in particular, if you this isn't enough Brexit content for you, I would recommend his um, interview with Tony Blair which I found really interesting and important, and we reference in this episode. If you're new to this podcast but interested in our takes on Brexit, I also have an Irish-centric um, look at the whole process with Cathy Barry, an Irish political theorist, and I've also discussed the whole thing with Helen Thompson from the Talking Politics podcast. So if this isn't enough Brexit for you, you can also go back and check those out. If you're interested in what's coming up next on the podcast, stick around after the interview because I've, um, I did a little outro where I talk about what's coming up next and I respond to some listener requests. So that's at the end. Stick around for that. As always, this podcast goes out for free and advertisement free to tens of thousands of people. So if you like it, please do subscribe and please do share our content. We always appreciate that. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you my conversation with Ian Dunt. Joined today by Ian Dunn from politics.co.uk. Ian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So, how do you self-describe what you do, if someone asks? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. I'm a liberal journalist. Um, I used to write about things like uh, immigration detention centres, uh, drug policy, freedom of speech. Uh, since 
mid-2016, uh, where you might have noticed that something called Brexit happened, that is the sum total of what I write and talk about. It's an insanely complicated, massive, sort of generationally defining issue. So the truth is, if you're covering Brexit, there's just no bandwidth. There's no time to really be covering anything else. So all of the other issues that I care about and wish to see changed have now completely fallen by the wayside. And my basic, my job right now is to slowly lose my mind on Twitter about the inadequacies of our politicians and the way that they're conducting Brexit. So I've asked, I've done Brexit a couple of times. I did it with um, Helen Thompson from the um, Politics podcast, and I did it with um, Kathy Barry, an Irish political theorist. And both times I found myself asking the same question, which is like, how are you doing? Like, how are you holding up? You know? Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of that. And you know, the funny thing is as well, when I talk to um, American journalists or when you sit down for, have drinks with American journalists in, in London, you have this almost competitive grieving process that you yeah. go through where they sort of sit there and go like, well, we're in the worst possible place we've ever been. I see no light, no sense of hope. And then you sit there and go like, yeah, no, that's pretty much exactly the same and exactly how it is for us as well. So there's this incredibly weird thing. The only gap really, I guess, is that, tr- I mean, Trump is more grotesque to me than Brexit is. I agree. However, he's less of a system level threat to the way that the country operates. The kind of changes that they will make as a result of Brexit are you are in the proper engine room of the country, you know, messing around while drunk off your face on nationalism with some pretty key levers that dictate the way you do trade, your economic life. Um, and even your political character. So on that basis, the the it, Brexit's more boring and not quite as morally obscene, but it threatens longer term negative consequences for the UK. Yes, yeah, that's got to be right. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll return to the Brexit thing. Um, let's start though with the theory side. So you described yourself as a liberal journalist, right? Um, could you tell me, I mean, obviously these are sort of these big, vague terms, but could you tell me how you view liberalism? You take a freedom-centric view of liberalism as opposed to, like, a justice or equality-centric view, right? That's right. And, of course, you can find a, I mean, liberalism is extremely broad, and there's no agreement whatsoever on what it is. So I can only speak for myself. So for me, liberalism is um, basically the attempt to establish the greatest quality and quantity of freedom for the greatest number of people. Hmm. Um, now, that's, there's an awful lot involved in just making that statement. Just to make the statement, you for a start say that we are dealing with a political philosophy that is based on the individual, and the individual as the primary unit of politics. The reason, which is completely tied up with both the birth of liberalism and every time that it has faced problems, is a core aspect of how it functions. You can't really separate reason from liberalism. They were born together and they die together. Um, But there's also something broader, I think, which is that it's the kind of political philosophy that requires you to make day-to-day judgments. These are non-tribal judgments. You don't get to appeal to some kind of utopia on the top end, as, for instance, communists do. You are forced to make day-to-day judgments assessing relative levels of freedom for people. And it can be fairly superficial, things like a smoking ban, or it can be much, much more uh, sort of deep-seated, like... um, the rights of individuals where they are a protected minority group. And in those cases, it requires 
that kind of day-to-day thinking. And that kind of day-to-day thinking has never been popular because it provides no easy answers to people. Mm. It says, no, you yourself have to keep on making these judgments for yourself. You don't get to, you know, say that a leader will do it for you. There's no political philosopher to do that for you. You have to make the judgment. But that's also, of course, what makes it beautiful because it makes it the most instinctively rebellious political philosophy. And it cannot be anything but a challenge to power because it places the ability to reason to make those judgments with the individual. It can never help a power structure mm. because it always centers itself down with the individual to make their own judgments. Well, that's interesting. And a question that occurs to me now is we might want to talk about European versus American liberalism, because I'm sort of of the American left. And on the American left, liberal is increasingly becoming a bit of a dirty word to mean centrist, essentially someone who's insufficiently committed to um, egalitarian redistribution or insufficiently committed to... um, a sort of quote-unquote more radical approach to social justice issues like, say, reparations for slavery. Um, And it sounds like you view liberalism as, dare I say, the original bad boy of ideologies? Like, um... (laughs) I'm going to steal that. Thank you for that. (laughs) But Um... but you view it as, I'm just quoting you back to you, instinctively rebellious. Um, Whereas in the States, it's sort of increasingly seen as like a safe middle choice. And I think sometimes seen as that as well in the European context. Yeah, so to be honest, the way that we use the word liberal is exactly the same to the way that it's being used in America right now in terms of the public debate, which is unusual, of course, because you know, historically, America has used the word liberalism in a completely different way to the way it's been used in Europe. It's usually just meant lefty, was my understanding of it for years in in America. Um, But we right now are pretty much where you are. So the right hate liberalism because it tends to suggest multiculturalism and, you know, an open idea towards immigration, for instance. Uh, And the left tend to hate it because they think of it as this sort of Blairite, centrist, neoliberal idea of not interfering with the market uh, and of a kind that really just didn't care enough about marginalised groups, about poor people. And I think that that comes down to really, there's a couple of aspects to how liberals here, and I I suspect they got so alienated from both left and right. Um, And the first thing to mention there is that liberalism does not have a set view on economics. This is one, and this is the thing that's been its greatest strength and its greatest weakness. And the reason it doesn't have a set view is because it is quite difficult to come up with one idea of how the liberal function of the expansion of freedom operates when it comes to property rights. And that was there sort of 400 years ago. That was right there from the very beginning, and it's there now. Do you, for instance, say that, you know, when someone earns uh, their money, do they have complete control over that money? Does their, does their sense of freedom mean that the government has no right to take any of it? Or do you say on the other way that actually by the government taking some of that money and, for instance, you know, creating street lighting or creating schools, that it actually expands freedom to a much greater degree because you have interfered with property rights? That's been there throughout, but it obviously became extremely severe with the conflict between Keynes and Hayek in the 20th century. And once you get there, once you get the sort of Hayekian victory, you know, through all, pretty much all of my lifetime, certainly throughout the 80s and 90s, and you found that most liberals actually gave up any kind of really critical economic thinking during that time. And now we're, we're pretty much not thinking this anymore. Again, the same with Brexit and Trump, that Brexit raised questions about actually you might need a new sort of idea, and Trump in the same way. 
But for a long time, there was just a sense of we've, you know, the, the free market fight is done. And the free market is simply more efficient than anything the state will ever do in almost any area. In Britain, you know, liberal thinking people were privatizing pretty much anything that moved. And some of the shit they were privatizing is a frankly insane thing to have privatized. I mean, there was a point where we privatized probation. Now, if anyone can show me, probation, by the way, for those who don't know, is basically the, sort of the system by which you try to keep people out of jail once they leave. Yeah, jail. and we're having a very similar debate in America right now about the privatization of prisons, correctional services, stuff like that. Sorry, go right. ahead. I mean, that is just, I mean, you know, if anyone can show me how you properly make a profit off these things, then I, you know, I am all ears. But they have never been able to demonstrate it because most of the time you take someone that's out of jail, you've got someone who has a variety of uh, mental health problems. They usually have very low literacy rates. They have for pretty much their entire lifetime not been able to survive to um, to solve conflicts or disputes without the use of violence. Lots of drug problems, often in uh, sort of hard to reach areas, and without decent family and friendship connections and without career prospects. Now, there simply isn't a profit motive in order to get private companies involved in this stuff. It does not work. And yet, because the ideology, the sort of the Hayekian success was so severe, even that kind of deranged prospect was, was considered. Because liberalism went down that road, it basically stopped being able to make the case of saying that it was this particularly radical thing because it gave up on one side of the economic argument. So there's a few thoughts here, and this probably won't end in a question mark, um, but I've just done a big series tracing the intellectual history of both liberalism and what I've called libertarianism, but you could call it like individualist liberalism or neoliberalism today, from around the time of John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer through to Keynes and Hayek. Um, and the first point is, like you say, on the conceptual level, the idea of what freedom is has actually always been contested in liberal political thought, all the way back to the beginning. So you get Herbert Spencer saying, freedom is security in your person and your property. Very mm. tight, simple, constrained definition. But John Stuart Mill, who a lot of people look back to as sort of the arch-neoliberal, explicitly in On Liberty, separates out economic freedom. He says, my liberty principle is compatible with, but doesn't imply the free market. The, you know, your, your economic system should just be whatever. And you get developing in thinkers like Hobson and Hobhouse through to, I would include Keynes in this, um, a conception of freedom that is individualistic, but situates the individual within social networks and includes elements not just of egotism and rationality, but elements of, of vulnerability. Elements that need nurturing and supporting and protecting by the community, which of course eventually has, I mean there's the Hayekian triumph, but within Hayek's lifetime he was resoundingly defeated um, when he takes sides in the 45 British general election, and the sort mm. of Keynesian model, the Beveridge Report, wins decisively and it's, it's, um, creates what I think are wonderful institutions in terms of the NHS and so on. Um, but then, of course, in you know the Thatcher, the Reagan revolution, that all gets undone. And um, now, whereas, say, perhaps in the 40s, the 50s, this model of freedom as expansive, as involving economics and education and so on, was ascendant. Now, the other thing, and these have, these have been competing against each other for hundreds of years, the other model of freedom was just individualistic property rights. 
is ascendant in our society. And it's like, I think the open question for sort of people of our political persuasion is do we try and go back again and dig out from history this more expansive notion of freedom together with the sort of welfare state commitments that accompany it? Or do we need to think of new political imaginings and political solutions? And I don't know the answer to that. I absolutely would go with the former. I don't think there any, because, uh, you know, I am essentially an extremist liberal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there, 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 are, there will never be a greater answer than the, than the very simple premise of how liberalism operates, of that idea of the expansion of freedom for the individual. Um, the thing to remember is when you look at someone like John Stuart, I mean, it is laughable to me that someone would consider John Stuart Mill anything like neoliberal. John Stuart right. Mill believed in the nationalization of all land, apart from very small houses and very small gardens. Mm. He believed in an, an end to inheritance tax. Mm. He was open to the nationalization of several kinds of utility. An end I mean, to inheritance, was, not to inheritance tax, right? I'll beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, quite right. An end to inheritance, exactly. I mean, this was a man who was quite liberal. I mean, the, the, the thing to look for... We as, well as, as well as on social issues, light years ahead of his time on women and oh stuff God. like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, to the point of looking... I mean, he must have looked like an alien to most of the people in Victorian times for the kind of things that he believed in. I mean, he was, you know, an avowed anti-racist. He was, I mean, beyond, he was basically Britain's first male feminist, I would suggest. Yeah. But the, and this is where, and this is where people will tell us he was problematic as shit on colonialism, which he was. But like, I think that should be balanced against everything else that comes to us from that thinker. Yeah, and he was, he was, of course, problematic. I mean, his views would have been quite usual on. I think the liberal left at that time, which was basically to say, like, look, imperialism will need to stop. But first of all, we need to make sure that the countries that we have messed with need to need to be at a point where they can govern themselves effectively under a democratic system that respects individual rights. Now, that is insufficient for me. and, And it is a weak spot on him. But it's also... If you were to take any kind of generous assessment of where people's heads would have been at at the time, you know, I don't think he comes out of it so badly. Um, the, the crucial chapter to look at for me on, on him is there's in the in the principles of political economy. He writes it out the first time, basically like a sort of classic Adam Smith guy. I mean, this is a guy who obviously, you know, Ricardo would come visit the house when he was being brought right. up. When John Stuart Mill was brought up, it was essentially as a prolonged series of child abuse incidents by his quite insane <laughs> utilitarian yes. father. And like Ricardo would be like, he got on well with Ricardo, you know, so he writes it that way. Then, I mean, so Harriet Taylor, his wife, who I think is criminally underrated in liberal theory and is, is arguably responsible for the harm principle, certainly 25 years before it was outlined in On Liberty, Harriet Taylor was writing it in her private notes. Hmm. But of course, she's been forgotten by history because, oh, I don't know, it's possible because she was a woman. Um, in that, she starts working with him on a chapter on the condition of the working classes. Mm. And in that chapter, when you look at the second, the third uh, um, editions of that book, that's where the socialist version of Mill comes. He calls himself a socialist at this period. Uh, he's not using that word, I think, in the way that we would use that word. For mm. him, he's really talking about the creation of sort of workers' collectives to operate mm. within the free market. But that is a this is a man who basically outlined left-wing liberalism. And the fact yeah. that now he is considered a neoliberal, I just find the most laughable misreading of, of his philosophy. I almost think about, like, Mill, as you know you get those, like, transitional fossils. Like, there's the dinosaur that's, like, half a bird, <laughs> right? Um, and he's kind of this point at which there's going to be this stream of liberalism that's going to evolve into something else. And I think it's going to evolve into... 
welfare state liberalism, essentially. I would draw that mm. intellectual history. Um, and Mill's interesting in that he kind of, like you say, he has one foot in both worlds. He has one foot in, like, the Ricardo axioms of economics world, and one foot which is deeply sympathetic, both on an intellectual and an emotional level, to sort of the plight of the working class, as well as what we would call today social justice issues. And it's interesting, he's sort of, he's not easily categorised as either, but just sort of this beautiful transitional form. So which is yeah. why I, I think he defies easy categorization. Which is ex exactly as you would expect it to be, given the content of his arguments on freedom of speech. Mm. So now the sort of really trivial freedom of speech guys, oh, the clash of ideas and I hate safe spaces and all of that sort of right. um, we'll talk about We'll talk about these ideas and they'll cite him. Now, they have only taken half of what he had to say about free speech. Mm. First of all comes opposition, and what he demands from you is a considerable degree of confidence and of inner steel to go up against, he says, not just any argument that counters yours, but you need to find the most powerful argument that counters yours, the best constructed argument, mm. and take it on. But then there's a second part, and the second part is synthesis. Now, he stated, I mean, he was obsessed with the idea of half-truth. Right. That in an opponent's arguments, there will be either a lot or even a tiny amount of truth in there somewhere. And it's your job not just to oppose. He hated tribal animosity, especially among academics, but among everyone else. Um, and what he looked for was this an openness, a vulnerability to sympathize enough with the opponent to find the sort of substrata of truth in what they were saying. Now, the reason he has that, of course, is because it basically saved his fucking life. Like, he had a nervous breakdown when he was about 20 years old. Mm. Again, because his father basically committed something tantamount to child abuse by trying to turn him into this perfect utilitarian machine. And he was saved by poetry. Mm. Now, poetry to the utilitarians, I mean, Bentham, Jeremy Bentham, to the head of the utilitarians, famously just wrote the whole thing off in, in, with a sleight of the hand, mm. was considered this sort of reactionary, facile sentimentalism, especially mm. Wordsworth. They fucking hated Wordsworth. <laughs> and they were right about that part, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, I mean, when Mill finds this stuff, poetry is what gives him this first inkling of feeling that he actually can find emotions within him once again, that he finds a reason to live. And from that moment on, he's obsessed with the idea that your opponents will have arguments that are true, and that it is your job not just to argue with them, but to find that truth. So it's therefore completely unsurprising that he should be this nuanced, complex, intellectual figure, mm. because that, of course, is at the heart of his entire idea of what the battle of ideas entails. Okay, so this is skipping a little bit ahead in the interview structure, but there was a bit from Mill that was coming back and back into my head when I was thinking of um, this interview, which is um, the bit about um, living truth and dead dogma. So the idea that if your arguments aren't in opposition and you're not having to defend them against, as he said, real people who really believe them and will do their utmost for mm. them, then it becomes something decaying, something stale, something um, that's held as received wisdom, much like, um, you know, the various precepts of Catholicism are handed down with very little understanding of them. Um, and I so this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves to the practical. I couldn't help feeling that that captures the current state of European liberalism quite nicely, mm. in that you now have, in the context of the UK, very impassioned, very forceful arguments 
for remaining in Europe and for commitment to a certain set of ideals that, rightly or wrongly, Europe is felt to embody to do with human rights, freedom of movement, and so on, um, that were never being made before the referendum. <laughs> and that there's two ways of looking at it, one of which I think this is true of Trump as well, is to say, you realise we could have, like, if you'd have just run a slightly better campaign, none of this needed to have happened. But the other is this sort of dead dogma living truth idea in that nobody really defended Hillary Clinton or the EU, and I realise those are very different things, but no one defended them on their own merits. It was sort of this eye-rolling, yes, I know, but kind of defence. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe, oh, I mean, you can tell me, but like, I don't believe this sort of like apocalyptic European liberalism is, is on its deathbed type of analysis. But what does seem to have happened is that it's got itself into a series of fights that it could lose. And in being in those fights, it's suddenly been brought, as Mill would say, to a living truth. And you see people who are not just defending it in the sort of sense of, look, you know, I know the EU's bureaucratic or whatever, but just vote for it because of the economy. They're really passionately invested in it in a way that they never were before. So I'll pause there and let you get in on that. No, that's great. That's extremely well put. And um, that's exactly what took place. Now, there's a, there's a variety of reasons for that. First one was social liberalism was... And let me, I'm going to, the EU is part and parcel of a broader anti-liberal attack. I mean, we're speaking in the morning of a day that uh, Vladimir Putin gave an interview saying that, you know, liberalism is now obsolete. And what's going on with Putin is what's going on with Viktor Orban in Hungary, is what's going on with Salvini in Italy, is what's going on with Trump in America, and is what's going on with Brexit in Britain. It's the same process that we are seeing take place, which is an assault on liberalism. Um, people for a long time in this country certainly didn't really bother making the arguments for social liberalism at all, because that argument was considered one in the same way that the free market argument had been considered one, you know, really from the 1980s onwards. And in both cases, you only need to look at the polls to show how naive that was. How completely wrong that was. Like, I mean, even a majority of Conservative Party members believe in nationalising the railways, for instance, and right. they always have. They always have. I mean, th this was something that was happening in the political class rather than something in the country. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, and something happened to liberals in that capacity too. So not only did they stop bothering to make the arguments thinking it was all one, but um, they started to, when they did make the argument, they made it in court. Hmm. So the European Convention of Human Rights is an extremely powerful piece of law, extremely, I mean, one of the most beautiful liberal accomplishments of the second of the post-war period to hmm. me, alongside freedom of movement, um, allowed basically all of these fights to take place in a courtroom. Because as soon as you could say, well, we've got to defend this, you know, this immigrant here is being targeted by the state, you would be able to find a right to family life or a right to privacy or somewhere that you could protect them. Or you could use judicial review on lots of these bases in order to challenge a piece of legislation or a piece of government policy that seemed authoritarian. But that's where those fights took place, in courtrooms. They weren't taking place in town halls. They weren't even really taking place in newspapers or on TV. The liberal fight got sort of, sort of, reified up to the top level and they forgot how to have normal conversations so then the referendum comes along and you get these chancing scumbags just come along and just spewing lies reactionary lies i mean fundamentally objectively wrong statements about for instance how trade policy works or whatever the law is in one place hmm. and you get all these experts who just who are just sort of left destroyed by what it's like to talk to someone 
to someone to argue against someone who is prepared to engage in that way. Mm. Because all they're used to is the much more genteel, respectable world of the courtroom or possibly the broadsheets at most. And we got our asses handed to us. Now, on the post side of it, suddenly you see something completely different. You see people explicitly, repeatedly identifying themselves with liberal ideas. Now, those are all Remainers. These are all people that Mm. see it through the EU. But when they talk about things, they're talking about being open to immigration, open to um, having various ideas in your head at the same time, open to international institutions as a way of controlling the power of the nation state. Mm. And people are turning into a specific political tribe on the basis of defending liberal ideas. So if there's any good side to what is taking place, it's exactly as you say, that this stuff is becoming live. And people's identity to it, instead of being something that's unchallenged and assumed, is becoming something that's explicit and, best of all, very aggressive. So, okay, I want to push you on this, though, because there's the other side to the dead truth living dogma thing, which is, one, you're going to be living your truth if it is in a fight that it can lose. But there's the other element to that argument, which you did touch on, which is that Even in the worst of arguments, there will be an opposing truth seeking reconciliation, an opposing partial truth, sorry, seeking reconciliation. And I find myself, you know, a Remainer, but perhaps a more moderate Remainer than some of my friends who are just legitimately outright outraged by some of just the outright lies and so on. And I guess I'd put it... I'll ask the question on the theoretical level first and then the practical. So on the theoretical level, liberalism and democracy have kind of been awkwardly stapled together in the amalgam liberal democracy. And there's they, they support each other, but they also constrain each other. And I think we all accept that liberalism constrains democracy in certain ways. So like, a majority can't vote for a genocide, and we think that's fine. But surely it's also the case that democracy constrains liberalism in certain ways. And I think it's in this way, in that liberals are rationalistic, they're planning, they have a tendency towards elitism, and democracy's always the check that before you do this to people, you have to be able to go back and explain it to them, and in a way that they will understand. And you don't get to say, They just don't get it because they're stupid. If you can't make it make sense to them, you can't do it to them. And by the time um, that Brexit came along, the European Union as a set of broadly liberal institutions was failing that second check. It had got to a point where there was a number of things that it was doing in terms of sort of this sort of constitutional treaty-based governance, in terms of all, all sorts of crap, right? where, you know, there might be good arguments for it, but it had got to the point where it could no longer present those arguments in a way that could secure democratic consent. So at a theoretical level, is there, there's something about democracy that has to give in the face of liberalism, right? Like you can't just vote for an ethnostate. Is there something about liberalism that has to give in the face of democracy, in the face of like... Like, I I worry on the Remainer side that they've just never accepted this vote. There's nothing to be learned from this. It's just pure racism and stupidity and um, charlatanism, which is all there, right? But there's no partial truth on the other side that can be learned for. That was a little long, so I'll put it Mm. back to you. No, 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 it's it's spot on. So the trouble is trying to separate out the intellectual core of the Brexit argument from the sort of self-interested day-to-day 
sort of political point scoring that goes on on that side. And you would expect me to say this, but actually it's quite hard to find the intellectual core. People that are consistent about what it is that they're putting across in their Euroscepticism and that maintain it without any sort of fraudulent attempts to pretend otherwise. Uh, I use that word Euroscepticism pointedly because Euroscepticism has a tremendous amount to recommend it. And in fact, I sort of think it's central to any effective functioning of the European project. Let's just get into what does Europe involve? Europe is born in the ashes of the Second World War. And it's basically France and Germany saying, look, We've done this twice now. <laughs> if, we, if we do it a third time, yeah. there's a really good chance there's going to be nothing left. Right. So um, how do we do it? And their answer is, is a liberal answer, which is to say that trade replaces war, that you right. get through trade what you otherwise do through war. And so they start melding economies together. Now, that project is now massive. It's the most advanced and sophisticated trade project in the history of mankind. And it involves absolutely getting rid of tariffs between countries and harmonizing them on the outside of a customs union. But much more deeply than that, it involves harmonizing your regulations. Now, this is always the great obstacle to trade. If you get one country that goes, right, fine, well, we're only going to have this mixture of noble gases in car headlights, or we're only going to have these chemicals allowed in children's toys, or we're going to have this process for creating meat to make sure that the, you know, it's as humane as possible. And as soon as you make that domestic political decision, that legal decision, you have to check on the border for the stuff that's coming in. And that creates blockages and that prevents trade. The European Union response is, well, we'll just all have the same regulations. Mm. Now, that is... it. it just puts this sort of rocket fuel into trade. And it's done tremendous things for Britain. Britain was the poor man of Europe in the 70s, no longer is now. If you look at what it does for services, I mean, almost no free trade agreements involve services in any capacity. I mean, in America, you don't even have uh, sort of freedom of services internally. If you're a lawyer in New York, you know, try going to practice that in you know, the deep south, it's not going to work out. In Europe, you can actually sell services within the continent. I mean, this is basically unheard of. But there's a flip side to that. And there's no point pretending otherwise, which is that you're giving up sovereignty. Mm. You know, it, it seems to me that the sovereignty is not that, you know, I mean, do I really care where the regulations are made on the relative noise levels of lawnmowers? Mm. And the truth is, I, I don't. I, I couldn't give a fuck. But <laughs> actually, lots of, but lots of people do. You know, I mean, it, it's not insane for people to say, well, actually, I do care about the fact that when you say to people, you know what, let me put it this way. Remainers during that campaign would scoff that the word sovereignty would be one that would be readily picked up by the public. Um, they thought it would just sound a bit posh, a bit academic or whatever. But of course, when you say to the public, where do you think we should make our decisions? Do you think we should make our decisions for ourselves or do you think the Europeans should make them? The, the public were very strongly like, fuck no, we should make our decisions for ourselves. And that argument is not a poor one. And it, more than that, I do think that if you're in, involved in a project that is centralizing power, not just from the local level up to the central level of a country, but from countries up to a sort of a multinational institution, you need to be pretty vigilant about exactly what powers you're pushing up and exactly how you're doing it and what your democratic structure is to assess them. Now, the EU has not been good at that. Um, and, and it would be much better if there was some recognition of the fact that it needs to radically improve. And it would be much better if it itself realized, given that something this severe has happened, it should probably be taking more steps in that direction itself. However, I do have to point one thing out, which is that despite all of that, the referendum campaign was not lost on the basis of sovereignty. It was lost on the basis of immigration. Yes. And that argument is a very different argument. It's much harder for me to see truth in it because I think it stems from a dangerous, quite poisonous place. And I think it needs to be counted wherever I can find it. 
But I have thought this, though, in that, like, this should be cause, and it weirdly never is, but this should be cause for the sort of hardcore Brexit people to take a step back and self-evaluate, but that there was such a massive rebuke sent to the EU, and it was clearly intended as a rebuke to them, mm. should also give them pause for thought, no? In that people, you know, people are not viewing them as democratically legitimate. There's not a clear European electorate. The European Union balked at the thought of having a directly elected executive, say, precisely mm. because they knew that they might elect someone they didn't like. Well, that's the fucking point of having democratic <laughs> elections, you know? <laughs> Look, I think that that's exactly right. And Europe has a terrible record itself. And the worst part is they know. And there's there's an amazing interview, I think, in 2017 uh, with Emmanuel Macron on British TV on the Mar programme, where they say, you know, uh, you know, what are your feelings on the referendum? Macron says, if you'd held that referendum in France, we'd have lost it too. Right? There was no sense from him that this is a uniquely British... I've heard Italians say the same thing. As well. Yeah, well, I think it's a, I mean, because basically what you're doing is you're putting a referendum to people going, are you happy with the status quo or would you like to give the system a kick? And their answer was, well, actually, you know what, we're going to give you a bit of a kicking now. <laughs> um, so I mean, that was mostly when Europe, this is, this actually tells you how wrong some European leaders have got it on the politics, hmm. that they often think what a fool David Cameron was to give a referendum on this when we could have told him the answer would go this way. I mean, that statement happens to be true. He is a absolute moron and it was a very stupid and for it to, to be do. phrased the way it was exactly yeah. however they don't take that second step to then go why would it always end up this way like what are the changes that we need to make in terms of transparency in terms of function of the eu in order to try and improve this and those questions are not asked and now they're actually less likely to be asked paradoxically because britain has handled brexit so catastrophically badly that support for leaving the EU has plummeted in every other European country because they look at it and think, well, if we want to all hate each other, including our own parents, and be lost in three years of the most abominable, interminable trade geekery, all so that we can lessen our reputation as a country and end up weaker, then we'll do this. But seeing as nobody ever wants to fucking do that, you know, now Euroscepticism is actually, strangely enough, down. But it's, I don't think... In the short run, Brexit has been quite useful for the EU because it's allowed us to be made an example of, for lack of a better word, right? We are serving as a cautionary tale right now. But in the long run, it's allowed them to bury problems which are going to resurface eventually, namely that, to put it simply, they've failed to secure the consent of the governed. And they failed to secure the consent of the governed, not just to a particular political party, but to a constitutional order. And that, that is not going away. And I think there's an attitude... Now, that sits uneasily with the sort of liberalism that you fleshed out, if nothing else, because it's not rationally derivable. Like, consent of the governed, nationalism, all of these things are emotional commitments that people have, but part of the sort of great historic compromise of liberal democracy is that you do have these two slightly conflicting values sitting together, and both of them have to give a little bit for that deal to Mm -hmm. make sense. And you now have, I'm going to say one line that bugs the shit out of me that Remainers always say, is they say constitutional change shouldn't be decided by a plebiscite. Because people didn't know what they were voting for, and they don't have enough information, and cool, how else would you want to decide it? 
I definitely, I mean, I, I, okay, so I, I don't say that thing. I don't think it's helpful. And I know the kind of cultural background between when people talk that way is that kind of sneering superiority. Mm. Um, however, I definitely am not a fan of referendums anymore. And certainly I think it, it, you have to be very hard pressed to look at the way that we are discussing these matters right now and think that anything healthy is coming from the debate. Because the reality is they are tremendously complicated and you could take aspects of it and hold votes on that and that potentially might work. But when you're trying to talk about basically 40 years of system-wide legal cooperation that affects things like security, that affects things like animal rights, that affects things, you know, like sort of the, the way in which your industry and your economy is structured, it's just not the case that any of that was understood. It wasn't even understood by the Remain side, let alone by the Leave side. So it does sort of Basically, what happened is they held a referendum where people wanted to say, I don't like the establishment, which is a word that you hear a lot, but no one's ever able to tell you exactly what that means. Um, and I don't like David Cameron, the prime minister, so I'm going to give that a kicking. And the cumulative effect of that, people have been aghast to learn, is one of the most fiendishly complicated generation of <laughs> defining issues they could imagine. So on that basis, I have to say, it's, it definitely doesn't feel like this has been a very good way to do things. However, on that point of, of lack of consent in the European project, look, that there is an issue there. Now, you can make the case. I think you're, you're fundamentally right there. I mean, you, you're fundamentally right with a couple of bases of, first of all, almost any time you give people a vote on this, they vote against it. So the French did it, you know, back in sort of... Hmm early noughties, the Dutch did it in the early noughties, the Irish did it, the Brits have done it. Now, in those other three cases, they asked again until people changed their mind. That was on the Lisbon Treaty, right. not quite on in and out membership. Um, but nevertheless, we still seem to keep on getting this result. Um, we also have uh, voter turnout levels during European elections, which are usually in most countries around sort of 30s or 40%. And so given the fact that you're not getting over 50% in countries where you do get over 50% on a general election vote, that suggests that there is a consent problem here. Um, it's not a done deal, though. On the other side, you find that most people in most countries say they want to remain. Most people do feel European and support the European Union project. Um, there is a system in place there that offers quite a decent degree of scrutiny. I'd say the European system is very good on scrutiny of legislation. Mm. What it's very bad at is exactly where did this legislation originate from, um, which is mostly sort of the council, which is elected head of states, but a bit shady, and then the commission, which is sort of the civil service, but is also shady as fuck, frankly. Um, and then a sort of a softer point of how is it that the EU conducts itself? Now, no one in their right mind would ever watch a debate in the European Union because it's so powerfully dull. Hmm. No, there's none of the structure of scrutiny that actually encourages popular investment in it. They've been really bad at that. And that's because it is ultimately a trade project with these other trappings underneath. So it's particularly vulnerable to becoming very technocratic and quite aloof from the public. But I think there's that thing where you just have to say, do better. I think there's this argument of, oh, we couldn't, we couldn't possibly explain it to the common man because it's so technical. Do better. Explain it. You can always summarise shit. Yeah, what's I like, agree. What's I agree. like the two-sentence takeaway that you need to know, right? Yeah. And um, I just listened to your interview with Tony Blair, um, who might be worth discussing in this context. But his, you were like, but how do we prosecute this case when the, the opposition is just, like, lying? Or I don't know if it was you, one of the panellists, lying and saying this and saying that. And he was just, his argument was, are their arguments trash? 
Yes? Then trash them. Like, that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And that has to be it, right? Like, in the... There's this sort of hand-wringing. And another person we could mention in a very sort of similar category to Blair is uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton, um, who I think is sort of the last politician, liberal politician in America, for all that he hasn't aged well in the light of me too, who really was about how do I take this complicated thing and explain it to people, rather than just saying the people will never understand the complicated thing, and the political realm is purely about slogan v. slogan. Um, And once you give up on that, you are giving up on democracy in some broad sense, and you can't be surprised when democracy gives up on you. And Mm -hmm. I have no sympathy, I really don't, with people who say, well, if only the people were smarter, well, you can explain it to your technocratic friends, like... They're not that... I know they think they are. They're not that much smarter than the proverbial man on the street. It's not that the proverbial man on the street's smart. It's that you're not as clever as you think you are. And there's a lot of jargon, and there's a lot of specialised learning. What is the fucking two bullet points that I need to know on this? Mm -hmm. And then go sell it, and that's it. So part of that is intellectual bravery on the part of liberals, and the other part is communication skills. Mm. Now, what has happened to communication skills? So well, you mentioned Tony Blair, right? Look, Tony Blair, when he comes, when he's running for power, he wants, he, he's got the left with him, he needs to win over enough of the right. And what's the slogan that he uses for crime? He's tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Now, mate, that's, that's fucking genius. Yes, like, it I mean, was such, really so good. good. Politics. Yeah. Like, you've, you've, you've pretty much had something for everyone, but it has a structure, there's intellectual content there. As it turned out, he didn't deliver on it, and he mostly put home secretaries in charge that were sort of fire and brimstone right. people in order to keep the right one pressed. But just in terms of how do you make the argument, that's really very effective. The, the, the was... crime has social causes and that you have to address the underlying systematic economic causes of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, all this stuff that liberals... If someone mugs you, we'll put them in jail. That's the sort of thing of, like, we'll be kind, yeah. we'll, make, we'll, take it, we'll try to stop there being more muggers in the world, we'll put more money into it, but at the point that someone does mug you, they're still going to get the fire and brimstone shit. Yeah. And that, that is very effective. It was so good. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, you have this, I mean, I would say George Osborne, in this case, in, in, a, in a way that was sort of economically illiterate. So he was the Chancellor of um, Great Britain uh, for the Tories uh, during the time, uh, just after the financial crisis. Mm. Um, and he had this phrase against the government completely unfairly used, saying they didn't fix the roof when the sun was shining. Mm. Now, that's also very good. What you're doing is you're, you're talking about basically yeah. relatively complicated sort of fiscal politics in a way that is reducible to a metaphor. It's effective and it's good. This stuff can be done. What it needs is people to just think in terms of there is a democratic mandate to communicate simply. And that's not just for politicians or, you know, intellectuals or anything like that. It's also for journalists. Hmm. Like journalists have really given up on their job. And my God, you can see it during the Brexit debate of as soon as, let's say, for instance, the word tariffs comes up. Hmm. Now, no one is happy to be talking about tariffs. Hmm. It is so boring. But that is what the issue is, I mean, well, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly one of the key parts of it. And we can't have this thing. I mean, obviously, like I do a lot of TV, I do a lot of radio. And you sort of think like lots of the time you see in the producer's eyes, the second the word comes up, this startled fear, because they just think as soon as a word like tariff comes up, they're losing, they're losing audience by the second. And you just got to get away from it. So there's no attempt by journalists to just try and explain very simply what this stuff is. I mean, tariffs, 
it's so easy. It's just taxes on goods when they go over a border. That's all it is. There is no one on this planet who cannot understand the concept of what a tariff is. But the terror of thinking that once you go into any degree of complexity, it can't be done. And so what kind of political coverage do you get? You basically get political soap opera. Mm. The, the entirety of the BBC's coverage during this, which is a fundamentally technocratic debate, that's what it is at its heart, that's what the negotiations are about, has been basically about who is saying what about who in the British cabinet. Mm. And is essentially a complete, it's really a betrayal of voters because it doesn't hand them the tools with which to form independent judgments about what is going on in the world around them. So it's not just politicians as well. I have to say, my own guys, journalists, we've been having an absolute fucking dreadful time doing our jobs and just haven't been doing it up to the required standard. So I did want to ask you this. Um, so on the practical level, what's wrong with this view? Now, I, I think for reasons that we can get onto, this view is no longer viable now. But maybe say like in the first year, after the, the Brexit referendum, something like that, which would be, I voted Remain. I wasn't thrilled by the Remain side. I thought their arguments were dead dogma, not living truth. But fuck it, they were the better arguments, right? We lost. And there was a part of the Remainer side I always found quite alienating that just never accepted that result on any level. So what's wrong with saying, we will leave the EU, but because the question was phrased that it could mean fucking anything, we leave the EU in the softest conceivable way. You know, customs union, Irish border stays open, maybe even something like Norway or whatever, right? But all of the good stuff, the trade, even freedom of movement, we keep, but we need to satisfy, we need to give a symbol to a symbol. We need to say to the British people, you have been heard and we're moving a bit. Now, I, 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 that, that can be taken too far. The sort of, quote, will of the people does not mean that one faction of that electoral coalition that gave us leave gets to unilaterally impose a vision on the rest of society for generations to come. But they need to be given something. And people will say, well, what's the point? And the point is you're giving a symbol to a symbol. And then if a future Tory government wants to take us further out of the EU after that, then they have to seek consent again, either through an, um, a general election mandate or a referendum. Mm -hmm. But that, I, I think there's obviously, and we can talk about this, something on the hard leave side that is irrational and unreasonable. But I think the sort of, like, the, the, the compromise view of, like, let's, let's try and have a Brexit that respects the 48% who wanted to stay. There were some people on the Remain side for whom that was also impermissible. And my view, at least initially, was, fine, they won the election, but can we do Brexit in a way that isn't fucking stupid? And the whole doing it in a way that's not fucking stupid thing was clearly not on the table. But, like, what, what's wrong with that in theory, right? There's nothing wrong with it in theory. In fact, I wrote um, a book called Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now, yeah. which essentially recommended exactly the path that you <laughs> just outlined, <laughs> which is to stay in the single market, stay in the customs union, and to leave the European Union, which is basically as softly as you can implement. And that seems to me the moral response to a four 48 to 52% vote. Um, it's doubly the case because between 20% to 40% of Leave voters 
were either pro-immigration or would not be prepared to see any risk to the economy from limiting immigration. Now, that really puts you in the position of saying, you know, leaving the single market, single market is where freedom of movement comes mm. from. It's the only reason that we're leaving this thing is basically because of freedom of movement. Um, doesn't actually have a proper mandate from the result. However, it's just not where, I mean, so I am, you know, I'm quite Norway. I quite like the look of Norway. I, I even think you could sort of make it work, although it's a humiliating position for a country of, of Britain's size to, to be in because you are going to take regulations that you didn't even have a fucking say in. You know, I mean, you, you weren't even there at the meeting. You weren't in the yeah, room, to quote That's Hamilton. not great, but that's like the nature of a compromise. Everyone's a bit unhappy, you know? Agreed, agreed. And it's, but, it, but it isn't great. Um, however, it's just not where we are right now. So, um... I think two things happened. The first thing was that, and let's be honest, it's not a debate. It's not about tariffs. It's not about trade. It's not about any of that shit. It's about identity. That's what the Brexit debate is about. It's a culture war about identity. Do you want a closed country? Do you have a pure idea of your national culture? And, you know, you don't have to work with others. You don't have to take on immigrants. Or do you have an open, more cosmopolitan view that is open to a variety of ideas and a variety of people? That's what Brexit's actually about. And in that context, it very quickly turned into this insanely tribal dogfight. Um... In the open, in the opening moments after Brexit, in the first few months, about half of Remainers accepted the results and said basically they wanted a soft Brexit. They wanted a Norway. And they were calling for it. You know, many people were making that case. Mm. And they were told that they were thwarting the will of the people. They were told that they were betraying mm. the vote, that they were getting in the way. As it is now, um, I mean, leave has become so radicalized that not only is staying in the single market a betrayal of the will of the people, not only is the customs union a betrayal of the will of the people, but Theresa May's deal, which leaves the customs union and leaves the single market, is by any objective assessment of the options available to you, a very hard form of Brexit, is also considered a betrayal of the will of the people and trying to thwart Brexit. During the Tory leadership campaign two weeks ago, people said that Michael Gove, who was a politician who was literally one of the leaders of the Leave campaign, mm. was a Remainer trying to sabotage the results because he wasn't prepared to put an absolute arbitrary date on when the negotiations were in. So essentially, it's a radicalization process where anyone who raised any question against the will of really quite a small sliver of very powerful leavers was considered to be betraying the will of the people. So if, if you're going to get called, told that you're betraying the will of the people because you want a compromise solution, very quickly, you kind of give up patience in trying to find the compromise solutions of people who treat you like a sort of terrorist witch for having suggested it then there's this sort of extraordinary this extraordinary sort of movement that took place where the government just started cocking up so badly i mean yeah. so strategic i mean it, it, the strategic ineptitude was the last year and a half of may's premiership was something else I mean, quite incredible. And when you knew anything about the issues, she would say things that you knew were, A, she had to know they were a lie. Or that, that the best case scenario was that she knew that they were a lie, because if not, she had so little contact with the reality of the situation mm. that her, you know, that would be more worrying than her cynicism in the other direction. Um, and she would do it just to survive another day, building up all these problems for herself in the future, making no bridges, no attempts to reach out to anyone at all. Mm. 
And so after that, if you're someone that argued for Remain, after years of watching the government live up to every every single one of the worst nightmares you had about how this would go, you sort of think, well, you know what, fuck this, and double fuck it if they're going to tell me that I'm also betraying the will of the people if I even suggest a compromise. So now, pretty much all of the Remain voters are back supporting Remain. It is almost completely consistent. So you have about... 10% of Remainers are still open to some kind of compromise arrangement, and about 10% of Leavers are still open to some kind of compromise arrangement. Everyone else has now moved to the extremes of, like, let's either stop this altogether and keep on Remain, or most Leavers are now in the position, and it's a bit more than 10%, but most Leavers are now in the position of saying, well, we want no deal, which is by far the most catastrophic, cataclysmic version of that vote you could think of. And that happened basically because of tribalism and basically because of the incompetence of the government. I've had a spurious, unresearched hunch for quite some time now, and I think I've been borne out, maybe just by chance, but I've been saying for a while now, everyone says May has to get three options down to two. You know, you've got the compromise, Brexit, or compromise in quotes, Brexit, you've got hard Brexit, you've got no Brexit, and it's like, how does she get people to choose between her version and hard Brexit, or her version and no Brexit? And I've been saying for a while now that I think when it comes down to it, it's going to come down to hard Brexit versus no Brexit. Because people really believe in them. No one ever really believed in the compromise. Delusionally, in the case of hard Brexit, and I think, you know, you could talk about the politics of, not just imagination, but the politics of fantasy in the case of hard Brexit... But I don't, I don't see a path anymore for any compromise, be it Norway, which I could have been sold on, or even May's deal. I just don't, I don't see any route for that as even possible. And I think it, it'll either be hard Brexit or no. And I don't know how we'll get to that final decision, but that'll be the showdown, I think. I agree. Although I wouldn't say hard Brexit. I just, I'd call it no deal. It's no deal. Because hard Brexit really, to me, is... You leave with a deal. I mean, remember, the deal is just covering your exit and trying to give you some sort of standstill arrangement until you negotiate a future trade agreement. You remember, this is a part of the world. 48% of our exports go to Europe. I mean, this is not like some, you know, if you suddenly, you know, you take agricultural products, you know, British farmers, British consumers of chicken, just like the Americans, think of it as a white meat. So they, they eat the breast, they eat the legs. What they don't eat is all the pink meat parts of a chicken. British farmers send that to France where they, they love that stuff and they actually eat it. Now, this is major. I mean, you know, if you tariffs on agricultural goods are very high, they're pretty much the only part of the world economy where they remain extremely high. Now, you suddenly put up tariffs over a one day period with your largest trading partner, and very quickly, you're going to lose the, pretty much the entirety of your farming industry. I mean, that will pretty much happen you know, with, certainly within the first year. Um, in that scenario, you want a standstill arrangement, and that involves having a deal with the EU that covers your budgetary payments, keeps things as they are while you organize some kind of other deal and make sure that citizens' rights are respected. To me, hard Brexit is saying we're going to keep that divorce, that divorce deal and we're going to organize a future trade arrangement later outside of the single market, outside of the customs union. That's hard Brexit. What they're talking about now is no deal Brexit, and they have deified this process. It's, it, and the reason is because of that thing that you alluded to right now, that idea of fantasy, of as long as you can talk about fantasy, you can make the most extraordinary claims up. Britain striding out in the world. It will be just like the British Empire all over again. You know, out comes the Britannia boat, and everything will be fine. If... The moment that Brexit got roped down into what it really entails, into basically a series of fiendish technocratic exercises, it was a fucking nightmare and the whole thing fell apart. 
They need it to stay in the realm of fantasy. And that's why no deal, which I can't, it is the most extreme proposal ever put by mainstream politicians to the British public. I've never seen the like of, of it to be discussed. For it to be discussed in the manner it is, it honestly feels like you're a hostage shackled to a radiator while a man walks around with a gun and occasionally, in very happy, reasonable terms, goes, oh, I just think I might blow your brains out and then shoot off my own head. And you sort of think, like, what you're suggesting is quite, quite mad. And yet they suggest it. And the reason they suggest it is because the fantasy allows them to just activate all the things they did in the campaign of basically a unicorn for every family. Yeah, and so this is where, like, I've been... Let's close on this because we're coming up on time, but... um. I've been more cautious of the Remain side than most Remainers, um, but I think we're at the point now where, where, like, it's difficult even to wrap my head around what's going on on the other side at this point, mm-hmm. because, I mean, we started with this. Um, a big part of liberalism has always been imagination. It's always been um, conceiving of new modes and orders and, like you say, not being deferential to authority, thinking it through by yourself. But fantasy is a perversion of imagination, and I think you're seeing that perversion has just occupied a central part of our political system. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was this fantastic poll recently, fantastic as in, like, just fantastical, of um, the Tory party membership, where it said, which, what price would you be willing to pay for Brexit? And, like, clear majorities were saying they would be willing for Scotland or Northern Ireland to leave the Union, um, Mm -hmm. in order to secure a Brexit. So it's not just you want your country to have borders, you'd rather have borders than have a country. And it's not even that, that, that... You can't even make theoretical sense of it by just very heavily weighting in democracy against liberalism. We talked about that balance. Because the one thing they wouldn't trade off is they wouldn't trade off Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister. So, like... So you're willing to pay any price except honouring the outcome of a democratic election. So there's no theoretical sense to be had of this. It's just you're committed to a vision which on some level you must realise isn't realisable. Um, I don't know. What, can, what, can we, what are we to make of this? It's, it's incredible, right? As in the, it, is, it is not credible. No, of course not. It's, it's quite... That, I mean, that poll was one of the most startling and depressing things that I'd seen in a really long time. Because it's basically people going completely mad. That's what that poll yes. is. And you're saying, I believe in this thing so much, I'm willing to see the breakup of my country, the breakup of my party, and everyone made poorer. It's an extraordinary place to be in. It's essentially a form of extremism. Um, look, I mean, I don't want to be all to sort of get the trumpets out. But ultimately, with those caveats in place that we mentioned earlier about the faults of the EU... The fight that we're having here right now is a fight for liberalism. Right. When you have an argument for people who are simply not dealing in objective fact, where there's a law that they say will grant a certain thing, this is something they do right now with Article 24 of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is com- it's mentioned in almost every interview with these guys. It's a, it's a piece of law that anyone that's worked at the WTO, any international legal expert will say, that is not what it does. That is not true. And yet it is still said because there has been an erosion of the idea of truth, the idea of having honesty about your statements, that there is a a consequence to saying something that is false in the political area. When we think about the way that the use of the word will of the people is used over the idea of individuals, that actually the will of the people essentially representing 
a phrase that is used extremely commonly now, the white working class, a really mm. extremely troubling phrase of saying, well, look, over here is proper Britain. Right. And over there is the not really proper Britain of having a prime minister that says, you know, if, if um, you're a citizen of nowhere, if you're someone who can have some kind of appreciation for more than one culture at a time, she mm. literally said citizens of nowhere. Um, the approach towards immigration and towards, uh, which I would say is part and parcel of a standard attack on minorities that we've seen throughout history, that we've seen towards Catholics, towards Jewish people, towards gay people, uh, towards Cossacks. Hmm. That attack on minorities is at the moment, not just in Britain, also around the world, an attack on the immigrants. Hmm. And in all of these cases, and, and not just as well, of course, the attack on international institutions, Trump is doing it with the WTO, with the UN, we see it by the Brexiters against the EU. These are quite conscious attacks on liberalism. And the defense against them is a defense of basic liberal values. So on that basis, where things are now, the level of tribalism, there is a function to that now, which is that we are basically having a political philosophy fight in the most, you know, the most vigorous terms imaginable at a real crunch point for the kind of future that we're going to live in. So for that fight, you know, at the moment, especially people like me in this kind of scenario, you've You've got to have the fight. You've got to make the case. And that sort of Tony Blair thing. Of you've got to win the argument. It's not yeah. complicated. It's not about conspiracy theories. It's not about this and that. And whether you can use Facebook for this kind of electoral or whatever, you've just got to win the fucking argument. And that's basically the battle that we're in right now. Is it one we're going to... Final question. Is it one we're going to win? Um, I, I said before, like, I don't think liberalism's dead, but I think it's been removed from this airy constitutional realm. And it's now in the position which it hasn't been since, what, the fall of the Berlin Wall or something, where it is in fights that it can lose. Yeah, I agree. We're, I don't know whether we can win or we lose. I, we're in the fight of our lives. Let's end it there. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, are there any, um, if listeners want to follow you on Twitter, go to your website, whatever, where should they go? Oh, uh, yeah, so I'm at Ian Dunt, I-A-N-D-U-N-T, and my website is politics.co.uk. Awesome. I appreciate your time, Ian. Not at all, mate. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Coming up next on the podcast, we're going to be jumping back to this side of the Atlantic, the US. It's going to be the 4th of July weekend, and to commemorate that, I don't know if that's the right word given what I have in mind, I'm going to do a one-off solo episode where it's just me talking about nationalism. And in particular, there was a series of papers that were written by political theorists um, towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, debating whether nationalism should be considered an ideology in its own right, or merely something that other ideologies utilise to express their ideas. And there's a few different thinkers who go back and forth on that. And what with everything that's going on with Trump, with Brexit, with the stuff, you know, that we've just been discussing in this podcast, it seemed to me like it might be interesting to revisit that academic debate in light of the real-world circumstances and tangles and messes of nationalism in our current world. After that, by listener request, we will a lot of people have asked me to cover the 2020 election and the Democratic primary, 
I will. I'm getting to that. And we have um, some good political scientists coming on. Because what I don't want to do is, like, there's a whole load of people who have, like, commentary, and this is my preferred candidate. And I certainly have my preferred candidate and, like, my character reads and my policy preferences. You know, I certainly do. But, like, I don't know what my value added is just doing what a million other people do. So we're going to be looking at the 2020 election, but in light of some of the underlying structures, the different demographic groups, the different ideological histories that have sort of led us to this point, hopefully nerding out a little bit more than just saying, I like Elizabeth Warren, which which I do, I like Elizabeth Warren, but I don't think you'll want to hear me talk for an hour just on, like, who I intend to vote for. Although, you know, we might get into that. After that, we're going to be looking at history, we're going to be going back to political philosophy and talking about freedom some more, but we're going to be picking up on a theme that I raised repeatedly in my Machiavelli series and talking about freedom in the workplace. Are we really free, constrained as we are, by um, the types of employee at will employment that we have in America? And I've got a good guest for that, who I think will be relevant. Then after that, I'm going to do another solo series, probably just one episode. It might be a medium-long episode, or it might be two, but I absolutely promise, I know I can be verbose, that I won't go longer than that, which is going to be an addendum to my libertarianism series. So I referenced that in this podcast, if you haven't heard that. Please do go check that out, because that's probably my single biggest solo project. It's like six hours long (laughs) altogether, and I do the history of progressive liberalism and libertarianism from, like, 1850 to 1950. And I'm going to do one where I look at the competition between progressive liberalism, welfare state liberalism, and libertarianism in the interwar years. And particularly, I want to look at the relationships of those ideological groupings with the ideas of eugenics that were becoming popular at the time. So I'm going to do an episode, maybe a short two-part series, maybe just one, on liberal and libertarian ideological responses to eugenics. And that's something I haven't seen covered before anywhere, but I've been doing a lot of reading on that. So in the coming months, I'm going to prep that. And then going into end of July, end of August, I have some good uh, political philosophers coming on, and we'll be going back to, like, a few more of the more, you know, traditional political philosophy-type questions. So that's what's coming up. If that sounds interesting to you, please do subscribe, follow, whatever. You can subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud, all of the usual, like, podcast apps we usually show up on. So, like, I use CastBox personally, but there's, like, Pocket Casts. There's, like, a bunch of them. You can subscribe through, through all of those. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are on Twitter, please do follow me. It's at PaulPhilPod, or you can just search for Political Philosophy Podcast. And it's nice to have you following me on Twitter, because I quite often do Twitter polls to get a sense of where the audience is at with particular topics. 
I never, by the way, change my mind just to cater to the audience, but it does give me a sense of, like, who I'm addressing the arguments to. I also do polls on what people would like to see coming up, so follow me there if you want to be involved in any of that. Apart from that, thank you again for listening. Thank you to my Patreons for making this show possible. I really value all of you. And, yeah, until next time. Thank you.